The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. My name is Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And today, we're we're really uh, we're really blessed to be joined by. Uh, um, innovator and uh, facilitator of difficult conversations, Adam Kahane. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. And uh, I had the opportunity to watch you work at a social lab change lab uh, up in Toronto involving engineers and engineering educators. And it was really fascinating to uh, watch the way you brought dis- disparate people to the table um, with the processes that I think we're going to talk about today. Well, that's uh, I, that's what I've been doing for a long time, and that was a good session, so I was happy with it. Yeah, thanks, and thanks for thanks for joining us. So we, you know, so we live in in difficult times. Uh, um, the the uh, things that are happening in the in the world remind us that we live in a, a fast paced, uh, changing, and challenging world, and we seem to be accumulating uh, tough problems faster. Uh, then we can uh, solve them. And so we want to talk about some of the ways in which uh, you've been facilitating these kinds of conversations that lead to useful action. Uh, but before we do that, Adam, you've, you've had this interesting career. Uh, you worked for utilities. You've worked for Shell Oil. You, you're now you're a director of uh, a social uh, change organization called Rio's Partners. And, and you've, you've dealt with you know, dozens of, of, of difficult situations. But let's uh, go back in the time machine. What were some of the, the key early experiences that, that led you on, on your interesting current career path? Uh, well, I've uh, thought back over it uh, many times as I've tried to, to write about it over the years. It certainly wasn't planned out. Uh, my first degrees in physics... Uh, and it was at a, a physics meeting of an organization called Pugwash. Pugwash is an organization that uh, of scientists against nuclear war that started uh, by Albert Einstein and Bertrand Russell after the Second World War. And that was the first time I, I heard people talking about how science and scientists could, be, uh, could, could play a role in dealing with complex social and political 
and economic problems, and that's how I got out of doing physics, which I wasn't really that good at, and in, into uh, energy and environment and economics, and uh, th that's how I ended up with, after several further turns in the road, doing uh, the kind of work I'm doing now. Yeah, and we've you know we've had a number of people that that talk about careers, and we have this way of thinking of careers as being this kind of linear and planned things, and and it's almost always not. It's almost always effectual, and one thing um, leads to another. And and in particular, this program is interested in unleashing young people, and so we're interested in you know what core experiences people had early on. So the pugwash experience was one, but are there other uh, unleashing experiences where where you be you felt empowered to do the things that you've ended up doing. You've, you've done fascinating work and all over the place, and so we don't normally think of school as preparing us for that. So, what were were some of the unleashing experiences or unleashing mentors or people in your life? Well, I, I don't. I think I got a, a fine education, but I wouldn't say that it set me on this path or prepared me particularly well. The, the, the real hinge experience in my life uh, uh, was in 1991 when I was working in the planning department of Shell, the oil company in London, and we got a request um, through the South African subsidiary of Shell to, uh, for somebody to facilitate a group of uh, people that were trying to think about the transition away from apartheid away from the apartheid political system in South Africa. And I got uh, sent to South Africa to participate and provide methodological guidance to those meetings. And that really was the, the, uh, the, the event that got me uh, uh, on the path that I've been on for whatever it is now, 24 years since then. Sure. So I had wonderful, wonderful bosses and mentors at, at Shell uh, who get, who prepared me to be able to take that opportunity and allowed me to take it, uh, but it was the it was being there and seeing wow this is something different I didn't even know you could do this I didn't know I didn't know it was possible for people that didn't agree with each other and didn't like each other and didn't trust each other to actually work uh, constructively and creatively on something that really mattered and once you've seen that it's it's hard to go back. As you think back to that experience, and, I, and, and you write about it in, in, in your various books, but you know, what, and, and you just said that you saw the possibility of it, but were there particular experiences at the meeting that sort of were memorable, that, that were sort of central to your, your changing your thinking about what was possible? Well, in all of my uh, professional life up to then, uh, I'd been trained and I'd been trying to be the guy who had the answers, uh, the smart guy who knew yeah. what the right answer was. And this was a, an unusual experience for me because I didn't really have any answers about South Africa at all. And beyond that, I knew just enough about the participants to know that these were really impressive people who had who had uh, been working for a long time and at great personal sacrifice to try to create a better country. So it, I, I was in an unusual frame of mind for me, uh, which is not trying to be the one with the answers and, and enormously respectful of the people who were, who were there around me. And that turned out, uh, I guess you could say by accident or by synchronicity, to be uh, 
the perfect stance to do that kind of work. And with that stance of not trying to control them or tell them what to do or manipulate them, but the stance of just trying to help them work things out together, they, they came up with a lot together. And it had an influence on that situation that most people around the world and most people in South Africa thought couldn't, couldn't end well. So that really was the big experience. And seeing those people that I was so uh, in awe of work in a way that was good-humored and creative and sharp and creative and open uh, uh, was amazing. And it turns out that that's that's a, a good way to do a lot of things. And there's a lot of situations that require this approach that I happened to across for the first time in September 1991 in South Africa. Yeah, beautiful and beautiful story. And and I, I'm just thinking about my own experience of becoming a coach. I don't really think I became a coach until I learned not to know um, what to do. I, that idea of being the smartest guy in the room and, and sharing that as what you're supposed to do when you're an advice giver or consultant versus being there to facilitate others exploring and, and creating space for them. is Those are two very different stances. Last, we had uh, Ed Shine on the show recently and he uses the term humble inquiry and, and you just mentioned synchronicity. It, what uh, There's a connection, there. you have a direct connection to to Joe Jaworski, don't you? Yeah, well, both of the people you mentioned, Ed Shine and Joseph Jaworski, have been uh, important inspirations for me. Uh, uh, Ed's work really is the, the seminal work in, uh, in process consulting and humble inquiry, and he, he uh, exemplifies that. And uh, Joseph Jaworski was... Uh, was my colleague at Shell and was the one who was my boss when mm. when this inquiry came in from from South Africa and uh, and and that was very important and we worked together for for many years after that and this idea that if this idea that he's written about in his book Synchronicity that if you're uh, if you're in the right frame of mind you can notice those moments those synchronistic yes. moments and be ready. I think what was important was that I, I noticed it and was able to grasp it. Yes, and, and, and coming from this other place, noticing it in that moment and being ready to grab hold of it in a way that affected, affected change at that time is just a, just a wonderful story. And so, uh, you know, as recent events remind us, you know, the world's full of tough situations, difficult problems, seemingly intractable tractable problems. It, um, in what ways are, are challenges tough or difficult? What does it mean for a challenge to be tough or difficult? Well, I've for many years used a taxonomy that I first read about in an article that Peter Senge and Otto Sharma of MIT wrote, um, saying or pointing out that or arguing that when we talk about a problem being tough or a situation being complex, it, it actually means three things, not one thing. It means it's dynamically complex, cause and effect being far apart in space and time, uh, generatively complex, uh, uh, where the situation is unfamiliar and unpredictable, and socially complex, where the, 
where the actors have different interests and different worldviews. And uh, that uh, characterization I find to be enormously helpful because it tells us in a very precise way uh, what's required, the approach that's required to deal with complex situations, and that is an approach which is systemic and uh, experimental and collaborative. And, and all the work that, that my colleagues and I do has this characteristic of being uh, systemic and experimental and collaborative. Nice. And I, I, I really like that, that decomposition. You know, I spend a lot of time on the dynamic side of it and have, I'm a kind of a Johnny come lately to the, uh, the social complexity side of it. But I, I think that's a really nice way to capture things. It, your book, I, I love the way you start your book by quoting uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, uh, regarding both power, the book Power and Love. Uh, Power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental, sentimental and anemic. And but our listeners may be wondering what what uh, what does love got to do with it? You know, what does love what do love and power have to do with these tough situations that we're facing today? Well, I've um, I think they have everything to do with it. In fact, I think it's the uh, at least in my opinion the 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 core, the, the core dilemma that we have to work with uh, to do this work, um, uh, you really can't do anything without, without, uh, without power. You can't, literally can't get anything done, can't move anything, uh, but just power is, as King said, uh, reckless and abusive. So, it's really worth uh, worth digging into more. Neither of these words are really um, suitable for for polite company, uh, power and love. And yet, I'm arguing that they need to be rehabilitated and brought back into the center of conversations like this one. And I've argued in that book, uh, "Power and Love: uh, uh, A Theory and Practice of Social Change," that. If you don't know how to work with both power and love, uh, you, you can't do anything, or you can't do anything helpful. Nice. I, I think we want to explore this a, a, a little bit more. We're gonna we're gonna take a little bit of a break and and come back and and talk a little bit about power and love and their and 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 uh, the different types of them and how they are useful in these difficult situations. So uh, this is Big Beacon Radio with special guest Adam Kahane. And in the next segment, we want to continue to explore the, the notions of power and love and how that's involved in solving these complex situations. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. 
To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with your host, Dave Goldberg. We urge you to get a copy of the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at www.wholenewengineer.org. And before the break, we were talking with our guest, Adam Kahane, about about complex situations and tough problems and how the, the way in to solve them was to bring the terms power and love back into uh, um polite polite company and there, there are things that it's actually it's interesting that we have such trouble talking about these things what what is it about these terms that is so so off-putting or so difficult for us well it's uh, it's interesting uh, my understanding of of power is that it's uh, the drive to grow to get things done to achieve purpose and it has uh, both a generative side, a constructive side, where this is how you get anywhere, this is how you build buildings, this is how you build organizations, this is how anything grows. And it has a degenerative side. If you're just pushing and growing without paying any attention to what's around you, you uh, this is degenerative. So power has a generative side and a degenerative side. What's less well-known is that love also has a generative side and a degenerative side. Love is the, the drive to unite, the drive to make whole, uh, and uh, that's how people come together, that's how systems cohere, that's how, that's how teams work, but the, the degenerative side is where uh, I'm so keen on everybody being together and one and whole and on the same side that I undermine the uh, the power the 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 individuality of of uh, of each of the members of the group. So, uh, to answer your question about why these have a bad rap, I think the odd thing is that most people, when they use the word power, uh, think of the degenerative side of power, power mm-hmm. over. Uh, oppression, uh, and oddly, the common, uh, the most common use of the word love is also the degenerative side. As Peter Senge once pointed out to me, it's those, uh, it's those country songs that go, I love you, I can't live without you, this love that, that suffocates. So there's a way in which uh, the, the conventional understanding of both power and love uh, corresponds to the degenerative side, and the reason I 
the reason I placed such a primacy on this quote you read from, from Martin Luther King Jr. is he, he points out for what for me is the, the essential mathematical truth, which is that power is degenerative, it, sorry, power is generative only when it's combined with love and love is generative only when it's combined with power. And this is what gave me the, well, the basic argument, which is that we need to learn to do both, uh, to assert and to grow and to push uh, on the one hand and to connect and, uh, and embrace and make whole on the other hand. And choosing one or the other is always a bad idea. The odd thing is that most people or most systems seem to tend to one or the other, uh, the, either the masculine or the feminine, either power or love. And uh, this is always a mistake. You always need both. And that's really what, uh, what the argument of the book is. Yeah, and you talked about this. You're in, in the, these, uh, sometimes in the coaching um, community, the, these opposites are talked about as polarities. And, and, and you talked about thinking about uh, the importance of dilemmas uh, in situ- especially in situations of uh, in tough in tough situations or com- situations that are uh, dynamically generatively and socially complex. Um, so the, it seems like we're asking a lot of people to kind of bring forward, uh, you know, pr- generative power and generative love. It's a- it's actually asking us to grow or develop as as human beings in a certain sense, we, because we personally, we, we tend towards some form or another of, of these things. Yeah. Well, um, the way I've used the word dilemma, uh, from the work of Charles Hamden Turner, when I wrote the book, I didn't know about the polarity work of Barry Johnson, but it's, uh, it's precisely a polarity. It's, I mean, I would argue it's the polarity or at least a core polarity in all systems, yes. all human uh, interactions and yes, I, uh, I, yeah, my argument. I don't know. If it's asking a lot or asking a little, but my argument is that what's required is to have both. And uh, you could say there's a lot of analogies that are, I think, not very helpful. But the one analogy which is helpful uh, in this or to this is masculine and feminine. So yes, uh, I'm arguing that if you want to be constructive in the world if you want to make things happen and do it in a way that isn't reckless and abusive then you need you need to be able to employ both power and love both masculine and feminine not necessarily at the right uh, sorry at the same time that's right it's a bit the uh, it's a bit about figuring out what's needed in any situation i heard a quote from a very famous business executive in canada man named David Culver. He was the, 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 the president and CEO of Alcan for a long time and was considered a very um, outstanding uh, manager. And when he retired, I guess it was about five years ago, um, Francis Westley interviewed him and asked him what his secret was. And at least part of what he said is that when I'm tempted to be tough, I I try to be compassionate, and when I'm tempted to be compassionate, I try to be tough. And this, to me, is exactly this idea that you need both, and the trick is not to overplay one, not to be just tough, 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 
yes. or compassionate, 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 but how to use them both, uh, learn to use them both when they're needed. And that's, that's what I mean by power and love being like walking on two legs. You don't, you don't walk on just one leg. It's silly. But most of us, uh, and it's pretty gendered, most of us are more comfortable with one and we either keep playing the power card or keep playing the love card. And it's, I argue that it's, you end up being either reckless and abusive or sentimental and anemic. Neither of which are very productive. Yeah, and in 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 the world that I'm working in, in engineering education, we we have this tendency to be, to be sort of tough, the this kind of weed out syndrome, and then so when we talk about love and sort of balancing that, people say, well, you just want to create engineers that that go out into the world and design bridges that fall down, and of course, that's not what we're saying at all. We're saying we're we're looking for this. Uh, balance of power and love, or or to put it in terms that are less uh, less emotionally charged, a challenge versus support of a kind. So we want to, we want we want engineering education in the future to be challenging and and supportive, both. And when you look at some of the exemplars that are are getting it closer to right, um, they've got that balance. They they, uh, for example, Olin College is known as a uh, one of the it's on the list of top 10 hardest schools and it's on the list of top 10 um, uh, best liked or, or most fun experiences. We, we want, we want to have, we want both. We, we really, if we're getting, if we're getting these complex situations, right, we really do want both. Well, uh, these, uh, these polarities are fractal. They appear at every scale and you focused on what it means for engineering education, I would just point out that there's also an implication for the engineer in the world. And uh, there, the whole you're talking about is not the individual, but the the social system, the society, the community. And you want an engineer who, uh, in addition to being, you know, uh, strong and uh, assertive and... uh, and hard driving, which is the power side, also aware that they're part of a larger system and their bridge uh, is dependent on by other people and it's not just enough for them to have gotten paid well for their bridge, uh, but there is a whole that they are part of. Um, and, uh, uh, and that they're working with other professionals and they're being conscious of their role in the society and that, uh, and that the bridge, uh, is part of a transport system and, uh, yes. and an environmental system and, uh, uh, an aesthetic system, uh, all of these things matter. So, so, uh, these concepts, uh, uh, are interesting and useful and also puzzling because they, 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 uh, they play out at all levels. Uh, just say one more thing about this. One of the reasons it's really fascinating and even and also a bit confusing is the 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 power aspect of the engineer is the wholeness. The the engineer as a entity, him or herself, uh, getting the job done, uh, working hard, building stuff, developing their capacity and career, uh, and the engineer in society is. The partness, mm. the, the fact that the engineer is part of something larger, 
and that the company is part of something larger. And it's all about being aware of both and not choosing one or the other. Yeah, and I and I think and we're we're coming up on a break, but I, you know this. Uh, you got your physics degree back in 1982. The IBM PC had just come out uh, year before. The Mac was a couple years down the road. The 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 browser was off in the future. Lots happened since then. You know, so and 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 you've been sort of part of it. Are these are these concepts still current? Are they enough today? If things kind of outpaced us or what's your sense of the way in the which the world's different today than when uh, you started working well I'm uh, I'm not much of a futurist I'm embarrassed to say I once told one of my older colleagues that I thought this email thing wouldn't really go anywhere so <laughs> uh, um, well the world's changed in lots of ways that yeah. um, but uh, I think the the big change I've noticed in my particular line of work is that the, the, the understanding, the awareness of interdependence, yeah. of uh, interdependence uh, over large distances, over time and space, uh, this is now well understood, the idea that we just can't get very far uh, doing things on our own. I once, years ago, met Hillary Clinton at a, at a conference and I remember her uh, saying in a little group that when, when she had been growing up uh, uh, or w- when she had just started out, people were still taught in school that um, really everything we need is what's right around us in Arkansas or wherever she was talking about at the time. And nobody believes that anymore. Everybody knows that what happens in China, what happens in Paris, what happens in Brazil affects our life. And so... We got to work with these other people, whether we want to or not, and uh, and uh, so the whole. What I've noticed is the awareness of the of the reality of interdependence and the need to work with others, even people we don't agree with or like or trust, is 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 higher than it was uh, when I started out. Nice. And so let's take a little break and we'll come back and talk about some of the practical ways of of uh, doing that. This is uh, Big Beacon Radio with special guest Adam Kahane and, and we'll talk about uh, practicality in, in the next segment. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And so welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with your host, Dave Goldberg. Um, Get the coaching and deep faculty development you need to help transform higher education at 3joy.com. And in the in the last segment, we were we we were talking about um, the well a number of things, but we ended by talking about the ways in which there's greater um, greater awareness of interdependence and the need um, to work together. But um, you know, working together, especially people that you disagree violently with, even is is a tough thing. What are what are some of the practical ways to uh, do that, Adam? Uh, well, that really is the the core of my my interest um, these days, Dave. I'm I'm trying to write a book called "Collaborating with the Enemy" uh, about this phenomena or this challenge that that many people feel that they got to work with others, but not just their friends, people they agree with, their colleagues, but, uh, but also people they don't agree with or, or even like or even trust. And uh, uh, it's not something that's, that's easy or always fun or that you do if you, if you, uh, uh, if you had a choice about it, but more and more often... That's just what's needed to get to get where you're trying to go to get stuff done. Um, and the more I get into it, the more I understand that it, in some ways, involves doing the opposite of what uh, might be most obvious or instinctive. So, for example, uh, we think the thing to do, the obvious thing to do, is let's just let's just start by agreeing on what the problem is. And it turns out that that's actually often not a very constructive way to start. Uh, we've got a situation, but we, we may agree that it's, things aren't right, but we, we don't agree on, on, uh, on what the problem is. We, we might agree that the situation we're in is problematic, but what's problematic for me is not the same as what's problematic for you. So this is an example. Another example would be we might think that, uh, look, let's just agree what to do, what the, what the answer is. Yes. And sometimes you can do that, but, but often we actually can't figure out the answer. We can figure out some things that we think might work, but what's really required is to go out and try them and learn and, uh, and work this out over time. It's not just a matter of, you know, making an agreement, making a deal, and then not having to deal with each other. Uh, on the contrary, in these situations, often what's really needed is to find a way to work things out over time. So, uh, the, the, I guess the, the last example I'll give of what's needed is uh, often what happens in these situations is you get a bunch of stakeholders, a bunch of people who are part of the problem, and they come into a room, and every single one of them enters the room figuring 
if only these other people would change what they're sure. doing, we'd be fine. Yeah. But it, it's really not mathematically possible that if we're all there, then it's got to be what somebody else does. At a certain point, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to understand that you have to change what you're doing. And I think that's the, the least obvious the least obvious part of this when we're in the middle of a big fight for me to realize it's not just about you, it's about me too. So it, overall what's required to deal with these tough situations is not to close up and become more rigid, but on the contrary, to, to open up and become more fluid, and that's, that's counterintuitive. Yeah, and to bring this you know, bring this back to the the education theme of the show when we when we work with faculty, not just in engineering, so that they'll oftentimes come to the table just as you said that they're you know so and and we so we can even set this up um, where you know so we we start with a prompt. Well, students today are not dot 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 and have them fill that in, and and they tell us all the things that students are not and. And at the end of the day, they realize they have this, there's this realization of the ways in which they're showing up that are helping to cause the ways that students are reacting to the interaction between students and faculty members. So it's that, that open opening uh, is, is really, is really critical. And in, in your, in your book, Solving Tough Problems, you talk, you call out, um, it, it sounds easy, but it, you know, the, the book makes, Sure, we understand that it's not not so easy. That 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 talking, listening, and and creating new realities are are part of it. But okay, so that doesn't sound like a big deal. But in what ways is say, um, uh, you know, what different ways do people say talk that either lock us into complex uh, situations or help get us out of complex situations? Well, the model that I introduce in that book, which is based on some some work of Otto Scharmer, it talks about four ways of talking and four ways of listening. And they're all, uh, they're all legitimate, they're all legal, but they, they're not the same and they have different results. Uh, the first way of talking and listening is downloading. I say what I always say, I like downloading a file from the internet. And the kind of listening associated with downloading is I'm not really listening. I'm waiting for your mouth to stop moving so that I can go back to telling you the truth about the way things are. Yes. Um, so that's not always wrong, and it's not illegal, but it's not very helpful if you're trying to collaborate. The second type of talking and listening is debating, where I tell you what I think, you tell me what you think, and we're listening for which of us is right and which of us is wrong. Like in a courtroom where there's two sides and one right's one is right and one's wrong. That's, uh, in a way, an upgrade on downloading, and that at least we're hearing what people really think. Uh, but it's not very creative in the sense that nothing new is being created. Uh, some, it, it's just, was, is it your pre-established idea or my pre-established idea that's going to win out? The third type of talking and listening is uh, called dialoguing. It's where I'm telling you what I think, but I'm also telling you where I'm coming from. And I'm listening to what you think and, and also listening to where you're coming from. And here things start to have the potential to be creative. And the fourth kind of talking and listening uh, is called presencing, where I'm listening to what you're saying, what other people are saying, what I'm saying, 
not so much to decide if I agree with you, not even so much to understand where you're coming from, but to understand what's, what's happening in this situation, what's the possibility here. Uh, the interesting thing about this taxonomy of talking and listening is that the real leverage point uh, is to change the way you listen. Uh, and coming back to the earlier part of our conversation, in other words, the leverage is in the feminine function. And this is uh, interesting because most people don't realize that there's more than one way of listening. But the kind of listening associated with downloading, which is just not listening at all, or debating, which is listening for who's right and who's wrong, or uh, dialoguing, listening to where the other person's coming from, listening with empathy, or listening in presence, saying where I'm listening to what's the potential of the situation. Now, these are not the same. And if we change the way we talk, and especially if we change the way we listen, we, we change what's possible uh, in the situation. Yes, and, and going back to my own experience in coaching, that was fundamental. The, 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 we spent almost the, the, the first few cl- classes learning how to listen in this different, different way in it. And um, when we work with faculty, it's really hard. People, people tend to be in one of those other, that the downloading isn't, isn't unfamiliar to uh, a college professor. Um, the debating is, is, isn't either. The, the dialoguing is less frequent and the, the presencing or really listen, you know, listening with empathy, really listening to the other with suspended judgment is really pretty, pretty foreign. And, and yet it's, it, it's uh, it's a really beautiful experience to be able to do that when you choose to. Well, I would just uh, clarify one point in there that di- sure. uh, presencing is is beyond empathy. Okay, it's not just listening to you and trying to help you become who you can be, which would I guess be the. It's listening to what's arising between us, or you could yes. say what's arising in the space between us. What's the potential of this? conversation or this uh, this situation we're both in so it's going beyond empathy and that's uh, as a as a group leader or facilitator I often imagine that there's there is of course what each person is saying and thinking and wanting but there's also what's arising from the center of the circle as it were and that's that's what you need if you're going to address some of the 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 tough problems that we talked about earlier in the program. Um, yeah. Beyond just what you want and what I want, what you need and what I need, what's what's the situation need? Well, and of course, in the coaching situation, it's it's usually one on one, and and in the in in a situation where you're imagining scenarios or or doing a, a social lab with other parties, you're. Um, there are these other possibilities, but I, I think as a coach, I, I, uh, the, the, uh, the sense that I have is you're right. It's not just about empathy. There's, there's un, there are emergent or post there are possibilities that are sort of unstated, but maybe implicit in some of what's being said that, that need to be called forth in a certain way. And it's as a coach, you're listening sort of intuitively and trying to, well, what, 
what you're you're sitting there going, well, what do I do next? Do I remain silent? Do I do I ask a question, and what question do I ask that might call these things forward? So, I think I have a sense of of what you're saying. We're we're going to need to take another another short break, and then after the break, I want to continue this discussion of some of the practical ways that uh, we can help uh, bring forward solutions to these uh, diffi- difficult problems. Uh, you're listening to uh, Big Beacon Radio with special guest Adam Kahane, and, and in the next segment, we'll, we'll talk more about practical methods to bring forward solutions. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. 5790 or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with your host, Dave Goldberg, and special guest, Adam Kahane. Um, Adam, in the last segment, we were, we were talking about some of the uh, practical ways that we can start to have the kinds of conversations, and it began with talking and listening in these um, different ways. The, the The third book, part of your book, uh, Solving Tough Problems, was uh, creating a new reality. What What do you mean by that? Well, uh, it's uh, not very esoteric. I just mean that when you're trying to solve tough problems, when you're trying to deal with complex challenges, the, the objective is not simply to have a good conversation about it, yeah. uh, to make a plan about it. The, uh, the objective is to create something new. And in this context, not just create something, a new physical product uh, or a new physical artifact, but a new social reality, a new way for, for people to deal with what they have to deal with. Whether that, uh, whether that's in transportation or food or, or peace or governance or education, uh, and so that th- this is the, the work that my colleagues and I have been doing. How can, what it, how is it possible for groups of stakeholders, groups of actors, groups of leaders, uh, 
from different parts of a system, whether it's a transportation system or an education system or a health system, who who all care about that system and trying to make it better, but who don't agree with or or necessarily like or trust each other. How is it possible for them to to work together to create something new, not just on paper, uh, but to create something new living in the world? So that's that's what I meant. And and I think you know from tying this to the my coaching background. Uh, uh, one of the foci of um, of work and coaching is is the person's story, and it seems to and and you know and uh, thinking back to our, our show with Ed Shine, the the essentially when you talk about culture, there are these deep assumptions, this deep story that is sort of taken for granted that is is really the entity that needs to be changed, and so you've you have you've written a, um, a a book in uh, 2012 on transformative scenario planning. It seems to me that this is a this is a way to get stories out on the table and and create new st- project those stories into the future and get people to think about the consequences of the decisions they they might make. Is that is that I'm sure that's overly simplistic, but no, but I like to relate uh, it to stories. I, no, I think the connection to stories is uh, is apt and. We're just making a difference here between the the story of the individual, which I guess is what the focus of coaching is, um, and the story of the the social system. So all systems have stories. Uh, Betty Sue Flowers um, refers to them as myths, uh, following her work with Joseph Campbell. Um, All systems, all, all societies, all communities have stories, and... Um, the idea of transformative scenario planning is how can we make these stories explicit and also talk about more than one story. There's more than one story about what could happen here over the future. And to do this, not just to adapt or to forecast or to figure out how to survive, which is the conventional application of scenario planning, but how can we do this as a way to transform, transforming what's happening through transforming the story we tell about what's happening? That's what I mean by transformative scenario planning. Okay. Now, and and so, and this is, and you've written about this as something that can be done, sis, you know, systematically with with several steps. What are what are the what are the important steps of uh, transformative scenario planning? Well, if our objective is not just to tell a story, but to tell a story, not just to tell a set of stories, but to tell a set of stories that, that can change the reality of a system, yep. then the, the, the simplest version of it has five steps. The Number one, to bring together people from across the system, whether the system is a neighborhood or an organization or a sector or a country. Uh, secondly, to... to pay attention to what's happening in the system, to study what's happening, to observe what's happening from multiple perspectives. Thirdly, to tell stories about about what's possible in this situation. That's what the scenarios are. Stories, relevant, challenging, plausible, clear stories about what's possible. And from those stories to to discover what, what is it that we can do here and what is it that we must do here. 
And the fifth uh, step is to act, act based on this new set of shared narratives or stories about what's, what's possible and what's, what's needed of us. So that's what I call transformative scenario planning. And and your books are uh, I love your books because they share some of the stories of your experiences and facilitating this and both what happened and so sometimes this kind of works like a top and then sometimes um, things fail or 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 there's there appears to be agreement but then the there are, there aren't actions taken what what are the trickiest uh, steps or pieces or elements of of trans transformative scenario planning? Well, I write a lot about failure because uh, um, I haven't yet found anything that works all the time. I don't know anybody who has in sure. these complex settings. And, and also I find that um, I and we uh, often learn more from failure than from success. So there's lots of way these, ways these things can fail. And I, uh, I guess the, the one I would call out, because it relates to our earlier conversation, is uh, only talking about what's good for the whole and not mm-hmm. talking about what's good for the parts. In other, in other words, only using love language and not uh, also including power language. And what does this mean for you and for me and our interests and organizations and ambitions? Um, it, it, that, that's... That produces nothing and, and therefore uh, ends up fizzling out. Um, that, would be, that would be one of the pitfalls. Yeah, so that's, and that's interesting. So the, I guess the, um, and I've, I've seen that in coaching situations too, where you, you, you go to the, uh, the, love, the love side and the support side and you sort of, for, you know, the, uh, especially, well, you, you made the masculine-feminine distinction, you know, so you sort of forego being masculine and challenging the person. And so it's, it's, it seems like the moral equivalent of sort of having rigorous conversations about um, what's happening to, to power to the different parties in the group. That's, well, that's, including your own power and your own interests as a yeah. player in this little social yeah. system. So we just have a couple minutes left. So and and so uh, one of the um, ways in which this work is headed is in the direction of social labs. So um, uh, briefly, how would you distinguish a social lab from from say mere transformative scenario planning? Are they related? Uh, what's the connection? Uh, yeah, the short uh, distinction would be transformative scenario planning is a methodology for for clarifying what's possible. And a social lab with an emphasis uh, not only on social but on a laboratory is an ongoing space to try things out. So it, it's a social, uh, transformative scenarios is a process and a social lab is a platform, just like an engineering lab is a space within which people try out different ideas about what, what might work. Um, and, and my colleagues and I have... Uh, written books about all of this. Uh, Zaid Hassan has written a very good book uh, called The Social Labs Revolution, the first book on this this particular approach. And and uh, I've written the books that you've you've mentioned. And and next week I'm going to start posting on on Rios's website uh, uh, chapter by chapter as I write them. The oh nice this new book uh, which is has the working title Collaborating with the Enemy, an open way to work with people you don't agree with or like or trust. So I'm trying a little experiment in writing out loud and 
would be grateful for, for your feedback, Dave, and for others who might and be the interested. Listeners will uh, be happy to chime in, too. So we've got just a, f- a few seconds left. Uh, where can people go to find more about your uh, – I guess they can go on Amazon and look up your name and find your books. Where, where else can they go to yeah, get well, in touch with of, you? All of this work and my contact details and this new book is all on our company's website, riospartners.com. R-E-O-S, partners, one word, riospartners.com, has all about uh, everything we've been talking about, including the references to these three books, plus the one that's coming up. Thanks, Adam. Thanks Thanks for being with us. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to our guest, Adam Kahane. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at www.bigbeacon.org. Uh, uh, join us next week, same time, same channel, as we continue our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.